Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Once upon a time, about a decade ago, there was a scientist who dreamed of starting a company. And for a while, things went pretty well. He got some cash from a fellow named Bill Gates and from lots of other investors. I knew exactly what how to pitch it, and I knew what they were looking for. And I probably subconsciously, as I developed the technology, was embodying some of their strategies, I think. The guy is named Jay Whitaker, and the idea for his company went something like this. What if you could create a whole bunch of batteries to store the renewable energy that has become increasingly popular in America? It could probably be very useful to a lot, a lot of folks. And if you could do it using very environmentally benign materials, and if you could do it such that it could be manufactured easily and therefore scaled up quickly, you might really have something. And Whitaker did have something. It was a saltwater battery. Not toxic, not flammable, worked great. And he wanted to manufacture it right here in the U.S., near Pittsburgh, where he's a professor of energy engineering and public policy at Carnegie Mellon University. He also believed that his batteries could be optimized to work with solar panels, which have plummeted in price and surged in accessibility over the last several years. So the sun rises in the morning. There's a lot of energy from the solar panel, but it set, the sun sets at night and there's no energy. So you then have to figure out how am I going to use that solar energy all the time. So the battery was actually designed to be charged in six or seven hours and discharged over, you know, 12 to 14 hours uh, to sort of complement the, the daily solar cycle. Ten years ago, the possibility that these sorts of batteries might become so widespread seemed a little pie in the sky. But there were clues that it could work. There was a crazy company called Tesla that no one knew much about. (laughs) They were putting a bunch of small, yeah, they were putting a bunch of small batteries in a big car, and it just seemed like a silly idea at the time. And outside of that, you know, some automotive companies were looking at different solutions, but nothing was there. the, the movie Who Killed the Electric Car was sort of recently yeah. out. Um, there was just a very different, very different environment. Whitaker raised hundreds of millions of dollars from some very smart people. The factory in Pennsylvania started up. It was doing well. But things changed. Other kinds of batteries started flooding the market, like lithium-ion ones, which are in your computer and in your cell phone. And Whitaker's company, Aquion, went bankrupt. That, though, is not the end of the story. It turns out Aquion is going to change the national electricity grid. But not America's grid. China's. A Chinese company scooped up Aquion, just like Chinese companies have scooped up a lot of innovative renewable energy companies in America. They're going to take the technology developed here, pump more money into it, use it in China, and potentially sell it to the rest of the world, including, maybe... Us. Which kind of makes you go, what? Why are we allowing this to happen? Jay Whitaker says, our politics swing back and forth. China's never do. When you have a fairly autocratic, uh, you know, government system that can simply decide and execute on things, they can decide and execute on things. Uh And there's been an awful lot of ebb and flow of, you know, the Obama administration was extremely pro-clean technology, was very, you know, adherent to all of the climate science that that is existent out there. Uh, And the current administration is taking different pathways, Mm -hmm. right? And so that ricochet, that whiplash is, you know, it makes locally or United States-wise developing industries difficult, especially around the the energy industry. Whereas in China, they have a very clear path. They recognize that, you know, they have, for a lot of reasons, they want to minimize the amount of fossil fuels that they consume. 
and they're simply just going to do this. I mean, they and they're the choking same on smog. I mean, they have they're like the incentive smog, exactly. to do it, right? Yeah, I mean, it's really quite visible to them in their right. big cities, right? Uh, and that 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 smog is actually interestingly, well, it's obviously environmentally awful. It is helpful in the policy process because it allows them to really visualize what's happening. Right. Uh, we don't have quite quite the urgency, right? If, I believe if uh, Washington D.C. were was uh, you know covered in, in you know, some horrible smog condition that was directly related to fossil fuels, uh, we may have a different decision process sometimes, right? Yeah, who knows? Yeah. Um, what happens if that budget for um, innovation in, in energy, in new energy, in clean energy, things to address global warming, what if happens if that just gets completely taken out of the budget and, uh, you know, or, or just so stripped down that it can't help very many people anymore. Does that mean that technologies do not get developed? Or does that mean that Singapore develops them or England develops them or Germany? De- you know what I mean? Like, does it just get outsourced to somewhere else that whose government says, yeah, we are going to fund this? So that, that question is difficult to answer in, in, with completeness. For sure, many other you know, na- international agencies, other forward-looking countries, are also pouring a lot of money into this kind of thing. And the, there's a theory around innovation and invention called the, the theory of cultural maturation, which is uh, good ideas occur simultaneously or nearly simultaneously multiple places around the world uh, because similar researchers are exposed to, uh, you know, information that gives them similar ideas. So there's an argument that if, if, you know, we don't do it, yeah, maybe it'll pop up in Singapore or it might pop up in China or Japan or Korea or uh, Germany or wherever. But at the same point, if it doesn't happen here, then we're going to fall behind. Uh, you know, we have in some ways in our R&D and intellectual property basis, we have put enough money in to, to get some foothold and to, to create some momentum, and that will be lost. And then where will we be uh, if if the, uh, you know, energy uh, economy and the, the fact that energy technology is, is truly important for the growth of economic development of a country in the next century, uh, if we are flat footed on that, we will be we will fall behind. And so I think it's more of the United States is at risk of falling behind as opposed to the world is at risk of not having these technologies. Okay. I think we would be very egocentric to think that only the United States and researchers here could invent things that are meaningful. Okay. So the technologies will exist. We just won't own them. We might not own them and we might not uh, figure out how to use them in an effective way. And mm-hmm. there's, a, there's an awful lot of cultural things that happen when you have a culture of innovation around a particular kind of technology um, you know, it's adopted more quickly, um, you know, and there's many other things that, that come with that quick adoption. You have people then get better at using other things that are similar, and there's a whole innovation sort of thing that happens. And if we don't have it here, if it's not something, if we watch other countries do it first, uh, we become a passive bystander, and it, it's a slower thing for the United States, and mm. it might be problematic in the long run. I mean, it's hard to say what will happen, but right. this is possible. Are there uh, sort of rays of hope that you see um, when you look around the country and you think about um, and clean energy startups that are just getting going um, or that are you know, maybe a little more, more mature? Does America have some really interesting sort of potential weapons here um, in the in the race towards you know clean energy? Absolutely. I mean, I think. 
Tesla is a, is a great example. I mean, right. there's an awful lot. Not a of, startup, you know, exactly, but you know. No, <laughs> but it, it was. And, and it, sure. And, but no, but but that's a, it's super important that they have become. They were a startup, yes, right? Yes. And mm-hmm. they've converted. Uh, you know, and, and you, one of the things that happened, you probably remember the Solyndra uh, debacle. Sure. Solyndra was a solar panel company or solar cell company that took a big loan guarantee and lost it all. Mm-hmm. Right? They uh, went flat-footed. And it was a huge political issue uh, yep. for the Obama administration yes. and the Department of Energy at the time. At around the same time, you probably don't know, or most people don't know, that Tesla also took a loan guarantee. Huh. Um, and they used it, and they paid it off. They repaid it back early. And hmm. uh, you know, and this was a success. It's a, tr- a true success story. And that loan guarantee program was founded under the auspices of uh, some will fail, some will succeed, right? Not all will succeed. And in, indeed, some did succeed. And Tesla is now becoming a, a major industrial force in the automotive industry. Uh, people really still scratch their heads, I think, sometimes about what the actual future is and what the actual, you know, financials are behind car manufacturing of that sort. But you can't argue with the environment that it's created and the point that if you do uh, play your cards right and you have something that's disruptive and you've got a very strong visionary leader – uh, that you can really make a difference. Hmm. Uh, the other thing that's happened is that whenever one of these small companies uh, downsizes or goes into bankruptcy or closes, they have inherently a number of people inside of them who were uh, trained, smart, understood the technology, uh, understood the issues around whatever the technology was in the market that they were trying to sell into. Many of these people go on to either found or work in other companies that have a much better chance of success because mm. the people who were doing it have already been through it once. Um, and so I, I personally am seeing from the people that we, of course, when we went, when we went into Chapter 11, uh, we let go a, a lot of our employees. And many of them now are at other firms, and they are doing really well. And uh, this is sort of a, a, a un it's very difficult to monetize or to keep track of the value of that, but it, mm-hmm. it's a real thing. So finally, give me a sense of what you see happening um, with all, like America's energy mix in the next few years. Um, my understanding is about 10 percent right now of our energy comes from solar and wind combined. Mm-hmm. Um, what's going to happen? Is it going to stay at 10 percent for a long time? Is that about to shoot up? Where, where are we going? So I believe it's going to go up. Uh, I think a lot of the policies that are actually dictating how many renewables are we, we integrate are state policies as opposed to federal policies. I don't – and the other massive thing here that's happening is the price of uh, natural gas resource is continuing to be low. And in fact, there's a, just even more natural gas, I think, than people anticipated, uh, which means that uh, we'll probably be bringing on fewer – uh, even despite the, the desire by some to, to buttress the coal industry, um, the finances of coal don't don't compete very well with natural gas, hmm. and now not even so well with solar or with wind. Hmm. Now, solar and wind, uh, per their nature, are intermittent, right? right. As we've talked right. about, right. so you right. need to figure out how to to co-locate some other resources to make it a continuous power source, but. Uh, I think if you look at what the states want to do and, you know, the very forward-looking states like California and New York and others are pretty aggressive about this. And they're going to continue to install renewable assets at the expense of installing traditional fossil assets. Mm -hmm. So it will continue, I think, to develop. Jay Whitaker is a professor of energy, engineering and public policy at Carnegie Mellon University. He's also the director of the Scott Institute for Energy Innovation. Jay, thanks so much. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. 
As it happens, Tesla installed the largest lithium-ion battery in the world in South Australia last year. It has helped provide a needed safety net for the power system there, which is heavily dependent on wind power. The Tesla installation can step in at a moment's notice, on a day when the system is under a lot of stress. A particularly hot day, for example. Here comes the sun, and I say it's all right.